So reach your hand out towards this incredible man because for many, many years he's carried a burning heart for the nations. He's carried a burning heart for the kingdom, a burning heart for the, the extension of God's goodness to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. He's simply one of the most brilliantly and beautifully eloquent, Holy Spirit-filled, dynamic individuals that I have the great joy of knowing. And he's here with us. And more importantly, he's family. You're at your aunties. He's family. This is family. Could I introduce you, the incredible Malcolm Duncan. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. The gate that opens to the pathway of our destiny in God hangs on the ordinary and unnoticed hinges of our lives. They're called our priorities. And the priorities that we set determine the direction of our lives. In the executive summary or the general report for um, Elam, Chris Cartwright put this question or made this statement. Imagine a movement of thousands of ordinary people whose love for Christ spills over into their communities in creative, courageous and compassionate ways. I wonder what conjures in your mind when you hear that simple sentence. What is it that sparks to life in you? Imagine a movement of thousands of ordinary people whose love for Christ spills into their communities in creative, courageous, and compassionate ways. What would that look like? When the history of the church in the first 25 years of the 21st century is written, what will they write? That depends on how we respond to Christ's invitation to allow our imaginations to be extended. Will they write that these days were days of opportunity and advancement? That these were the days of not only transformation, because any group can bring transformation, but transfiguration can only come through Christian mission and witness. Will they say that these were the days of transfiguration and hope? If Christ should tarry, will our children's children be able to say that we gave it our all? That we did what we could? Will they say that their forebearers stood on the shoulders of giants so that they, our children's children, could see further, reach higher, go deeper, and dream bigger. Well, that depends on the choices that you and I make tonight and the way in which we hold the compass of our intentions before Almighty God. If we set the Spirit as our true north, and allow his presence and purpose and power to ignite us, then anything is possible. God in his sovereignty can raise up anyone he likes to do anything he likes in any place that he likes. Maybe that's you and me tonight. What might God do with us? But the Pentecostal church has no birthright. We have no entitlement. We can't demand anything from God. We have no residual power that is ours by divine right. When Paul said of himself, 
to the Corinthians that he was weak and his frailty and his inadequacy were evident. It could be equally said of you and me tonight. He says this about Christ appearing to him in that great chapter on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 to 10. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In perhaps his third letter to the Corinthians that we have as 2 Corinthians, he says this in chapter 3. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God. Who has made us competent to, to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of letter, but of spirit. For the, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Whatever has been achieved for the glory of God through Elam in the first part of our life has been achieved for the glory of God and not for the glory of Elam. Of course, women and men took great risks. To quote Theodore Roosevelt, they dared greatly. Our forebears are those that risked life and limb for God. They struck out into new territory. They stood in the arena of their day and they proclaimed that God was not finished with his church. Their primitive, heartfelt, raw, radical encounters with God left communities transformed and breathless with wonder at the reality of what God can do when we allow him the time and the space in our lives to be who he is and to do what he loves to do. They blazed a trail for us. They went ahead for us. They are like our cloud of witnesses. We know their names. We're inspired by their stories. We're reminded of what is possible through ordinary women and men when we hear of their exploits. George Jeffries, Albert Kerr, George Allen, Frederick Furlow, Robert and John Mercer, William Henderson, the Elam Evangelistic Band of 1915. Smith Wigglesworth, Stephen Jeffries, Amy Temple McPherson. These people have told their stories and we've heard them. They've become part of our culture, part of our understanding. Peter, Sandra, Philip and Joy McCann. Philip, Susan and Rebecca Evans. Roy, Joyce and Pamela Grace Lynn. Catherine Pickin and Elizabeth Wendy Hamilton White, Mary Fisher, and a number of years later, Joy Bath. They are our heroes. They went ahead of us. They gave their lives. They spent themselves for the gospel. But make no mistake about it, we have no right to a bright future simply because we bear the name Pentecostal or because we're part of the Elam family. We have to avoid being so presumptuous because it was that very sin that sat at the heart of Israel's folly. The entire story of the Old Testament is one of a people who made assumptions. We must not assume 
that Pentecostalism or Elam has a secure future. The Hebrew people assumed that God would not let them be taken into exile. Yet the northern kingdom were swept into Assyrian exile in 722 BC, never to come out again. And the people of the southern kingdom were swept into exile in three waves starting in 606. We must not allow our spirituality to be self-absorbed and all about us. The Israelite people assumed that their privileged relationship with God was primarily for them to enjoy rather than for the world to see what God was truly like and what a community transformed by grace and empowered by God's presence could be. And we must not allow ourselves to define our worship purely in terms of our singing, our music and our gatherings. There's a deep lesson here for us from the minor prophets, perhaps particularly the prophet Amos, this southerner who was sent by God to the north to warn them of their continued self-indulgence. Amos quite literally circles Israel with his words, starting with God's challenges to Damascus, the nation or the city furthest away in Amos 1.3, then moving to Gaza in Amos 1.6, then to Tyre in 1.9 and Edom in 1.11. Then the Ammonites in 1.13. Then to Moab in 2.1. Then to Judah, his own people in 2.4. And if I was drawing that picture on a map, you would see that they were coming closer and closer and closer to the northern kingdom. But he doesn't get to them until 2.6. And his strongest words are toward them. He challenges them. His charge against them is that they are living double lives. They're worshipping God with passion and verve in their ceremonies and they are ignoring his precepts and his principles in their communities and they are thereby missing the point that their witness to one another and their witness to the world around them is not just about what they do when they gather. Read Amos chapter 2 verses 6 to 8 to hear what God says through this prophet tenderly perhaps but thunderingly to those people who assumed that they could never be hurt. I sometimes wonder whether the Pentecostal church is a little bit like the southern kingdom. We see the rest of the church going into decline. We see it struggling and we think to ourselves, it could never happen to us. It'll never happen because we have a verve and a passion and a yearning and a hunger. I'm not so sure. What is God's charge against this kingdom. Three things. They have forgotten the poor. According to Amos 2.6, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and they push the afflicted out of the way. Secondly, they have abandoned faithfulness to God and sexual ethics. Verse 7, father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. And thirdly, they've lost their sense of reverence and awe and respect for God. And the place of worship has become a place where they satisfy their own desires. In the house of their God, verse 8, they drink wine bought with fines that they imposed. Brothers and sisters, we must be sure that we do not make the same mistakes. The Church of Jesus Christ in general, the Pentecostal Church 
And the Elam church must not forget the poor. We must not abandon our commitment to biblical faithfulness, particularly sexual ethics. And we must not turn our worship experiences into self-indulgent feasts at the expense of the world around us. If we do, then we too will hear the voice of God as he spoke to Israel. Words that should bring a chill to us. I hate. I despise your festivals. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a never-flowing stream. I was so grateful to you, Simon, for how you led us tonight in worship and intercession, declaring the faithfulness of God over the world, over our cities. It doesn't have to be an either-or. It can be a both and. And what I love about being here over these last couple of days is hearing men and women, brothers and sisters, worshiping God with all of our hearts. And so we should. Whilst at the same time, crying out for our communities and our cities and our nations and our world. They don't have to cancel one another out. But we must be careful of our assumptions. God is not indebted to you. And he is not indebted to me. And he is not indebted to the Pentecostal church. In the words of Isaac Asimov, your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while, or the light won't come in. On Thursday the 7th of January at Knox's Temperance Hotel in Monaghan, 1915, the Elam Evangelistic Band had no idea that just over a hundred years later, the Pentecostal church that was birthed in those moments and became known as Elam would be marking its centenary in 2015. I wonder what they thought about when they looked across the years. Did they dream for a minute that they would see what you and I have seen? Did they have any imagination of the possibilities that lay in front of them? I really don't think they did. I don't think they could see that far. I don't think they could understand just how much God could do with them. 102 years later, the Elam Church is working in almost 60 countries around the world. Malawi, Nigeria, Swaziland, Honduras, Cambodia, Romania, Nepal, Macedonia, France, Spain. Thousands of churches, as you've seen from the reports. And in the UK, we have churches as far north as Fraserburgh and as far south as St. Peterport, Guernsey. As far east as Broadstairs in Kent and as far west as Westport in County Mayo. Tonight, we are part of a family of believers that numbers in the hundreds of thousands in the Elam family and a wider family of around 600 million Pentecostals and somewhere in the region of 2.1 billion Christians who identify themselves as followers of Jesus. As you and I come to the end of a day, just one day, somewhere between 85,000 and 100,000 people have been swept into the kingdom of God today. And tomorrow, another 100,000 will be swept into the kingdom. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. 
God's kingdom has never been as big as it is tonight. It's never been growing as fast as it is this evening. We look back with deep thankfulness. We look to God with gratitude for all that he's done. In the words of Psalm 118, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. But God has so much more to do. He has so much more to bring to us. He has so much more hope to give to us. I wonder if we can allow ourselves to dream further, to think more deeply, to be transformed and challenged by all that God could do in us and through us. I want to take just a few minutes to explore a series of passages and see where God takes us with them. They're very simple. They're not complicated. The first, interestingly, ties in with where you were yesterday, Duncan. As I've listened to all of the um, celebrations, I've been encouraged by God, by what he has been saying and doing. Hearing bits of the jigsaw of what I had thought God was laying on my heart, articulated by different people in different contexts. So if you have a Bible with you, you're going to need to look at a couple of places. First of all, I'd like you to take up the book of Haggai. Let me set the context for you. It was um, a series of uh, prophetic utterances, not many, that were delivered by the prophet Haggai probably uh, between September and December in either 521 or 520 BC. And in a short period of time, the same time as we heard that Zechariah was prophesying from Duncan yesterday, Haggai is raised up by God to challenge the people of Israel to think differently about where they are and to start or finish the work that God had called them to do. Here's the backstory for you. Um, you heard it a little bit uh, this morning, if you were here in our session this morning as we looked at what it meant to have a devotional life that was transformed by the grace and the mercy of God. Up until um, 541, 542, something like that, the people of Israel had found themselves um, in uh, modern in Babylon. Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah and realizes that God has promised that after 70 years, he's going to bring his people out of exile. And he calculates that the first people that went into exile in Judah went in around about 606 or 607. And he realizes that the 70 years are almost up. And he begins to pray that God's will would be done, that God's purposes would be accomplished, that God would move in power. And we see... Whole nations transformed, superpowers changed as God brings his purposes into play. A man called King Cyrus who leads Persia, sweeps down upon the Babylonians, overtakes their empire and announces a decree that says that anyone in his vassal empires can return to their countries as long as they build temples that will pray and they will pray for him in them. If you go to the British Museum in London and go to room 50, you'll see something called Cyrus's Cylinder. Written on it is the declaration that says that people are allowed to go back. That was the thing that released Judah to go back to their homeland. They go around 538 and they start to do the work. But as Duncan said yesterday, they falter, they stop. They start and they stop and they start and they stop and they start and they stop. And then around about 521 or 520, Haggai is raised up by God. To remind them that they have a work to do. I wonder. Does the Pentecostal work. Need to discover energy and passion about what God called us to do again. 
Do we need God to breathe upon us in a fresh and a new way that reminds us of what we were about, of where we are to go and what God has called us to be? I don't know about you, but I often hear people talking now about, um, particularly if you're talking to people that love the Bible, they talk about eras in the Old Testament and say things like this. How could the Jewish people not realize what was happening around them? How couldn't they see what God was doing? How couldn't they understand it? I wonder if in a hundred years, when the story is written of our decade, that they will say, how could the church not see what was happening when Donald Trump became president? How could the church not understand the changes that were happening in Europe? How could they not see the prophetic implications of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union? How could they miss the rise of Hungarian nationalism? How could Europe, Europe's Christians miss what God was doing? Were they self-absorbed? Were they worrying about themselves and not seeing what was going on in the world? God uses Haggai to call these people to consider their ways. He tells them again and again and again, consider your ways. Think about what has been going on for you. Let's read some of this uh, together for a moment. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai saying, is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you that earn wages, earn wages to put them into a bag with holes in it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You have looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while all of you hurry off to your own houses. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the soil produces, on human beings and animals and on all their labors. Again and again through Haggai, God tells them through this prophet, consider your ways. The late great John Stott, speaking about the evangelical church in the 20th century, said he was disappointed at where it ended up. He expected more. I wonder, would our Pentecostal forebearers say the same thing? Maybe you do. Maybe you expected more. Maybe you expected a greater move of God. Maybe you come to this conference discouraged. But in your heart, there's a longing to see the power of God moving in a fresh and in a new way. I want to ask you tonight to consider that we have the same spirit 
but that perhaps God is calling us to a different paradigm. Let me explain what I mean. When you read Acts chapter 2, you read of a group of people that were huddled together trying to work out what they were going to do next. And the Holy Spirit came and rested upon them in power. That was not the birth of the Pentecostal church. That was the birth of the church. We have no divine right to that moment. That's the moment where the church gets its life from. And that moment itself is contained in the promise to God that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember it? He says to him, I am going to bless you and through all the nation, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. I am blessing you that you might be a blessing. I wonder when God poured out his spirit at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. Where does that fit in the paradigm of 2,000 years of church history? 2,000 years of what God was doing. See, if we take a longer view, if we allow ourselves to think slightly beyond our own lifetime or beyond our own movement's history, we'll discover that through 2,000 years of church history, God has been breathing his spirit on his people again and again and again and again and again. He did it on the day of Pentecost. He does it repeatedly through the book of Acts. His longing is to draw his church into the missional purposes that he had. Mission doesn't exist because we have empty seats in our churches. Mission exists because of an overflowing love that God has for human beings. And God is always drawing us into this greater awareness of his purposes. In the early years of the church, some of the men and women that led these movements of spirit life and spirit power quickly became heretics or branded as them. Montanists and the new prophecies. He went a bit skew with. Tertullian became one of his followers. The early desert fathers, Antony and Anna, Francis, and Claire, Bernard of Clairvaux, Teresa of Avila. Martin Luther, John Calvin, men and women that God raised up to say something into the church, not just for a sect, but for the church. John Wesley and his brother Charles in the 1700s into the 1800s, the Methodist holiness movement that gave birth to the Pentecostal movement of the early 20th century. I know all of you know this, but you do realize, don't you, that Smith Wigglesworth and Stephen Jeffries and George Jeffries didn't preach a Pentecostal message. They preached a biblical one. They ended up in a Pentecostal denomination because the churches didn't want them. They didn't reject the church. The church rejected them. Wesley didn't want to stop being an Anglican. He spent his whole life wanting to be connected to the Anglican church. They rejected him. We must be careful as Pentecostals that we don't reject the rest of the body of Christ. We must remember that what God birthed in us and through us wasn't just for us. It's for the church and it's for the world. This is a year of anniversaries. 500 years ago on the 31st of October, a young German monk called Martin Luther nailed 95 objections to the Roman Catholic Church to the door at Wittenberg. The symbolic moment of beginning of the Reformation. I'd argue that it actually began more fully a couple of years later. But it doesn't matter. 
What he presented to the church was a rediscovery of grace. A rediscovery of the, of the um, power of faith. He stripped back many of the things that needed to be stripped back as he challenged the dominant church of the day to think again about who they were and what they stood for. But he didn't go as far as he could have gone. It's not being disrespectful to him. He wasn't reformed. He was reforming. He didn't do that much. About his ecclesiology. He didn't do that much. About the role of uh, priests or pastors. He didn't do that much. About some of the things that still need to be reformed in the church. He didn't go as far as you and I could go. Now let me ask you this question. With the same principle in mind. Four square gospel people. That's what we are right? Well kind of. We believe in Jesus as healer and saviour and baptizer And coming king. But what if, when God birthed that powerful movement in the first decade of the 20th century, it was the beginning of something, not the end. What if 117 years after the first outpouring of the Spirit, it lies to us as a generation to ask what does it mean to be Pentecostal for the next 100 years? What if God is asking us to think in a way that takes us further than we have been? I'm grateful that I'm Pentecostal. I'm grateful that I was born again in a Pentecostal church. I'm grateful for the Elam family. I'm grateful to be part of it. I'm grateful to be able to share my life in the spirit with this church family. But I also pastor and lead in another context. And sometimes it's frustrating. But I am there Whilst at the same time being deeply rooted in what it means to be someone who believes in being born again and filled with the Spirit and empowered by Him to serve the church and to serve the world. We have a very pietistic understanding of what it means to have Jesus as Savior and Healer and Baptizer and Coming King. He's your Savior. He's my Savior. He's your Healer. He's my Healer. What if the next paradigm for the Pentecostal church is exactly where Simon was leading us in worship? What if the question that he's now asking of us is imagine, think what it would would be like to see a whole community transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Think what it would be like for a Pentecostal church alive with the power of God Not to be curved in upon itself, but to be curved out to a world in desperate need of hope and life and transformation and forgiveness. What would it look like for us to remember the poor? What would it look like for our worship not to be curved in on what we enjoy, but curved out into what the world needs to see in a believing and worshipping body of people? The possibilities, brothers and sisters, are endless. I began my journey into some of the things that I will spend the rest of my life exploring 20 years ago. And I've discovered something about the power of the Holy Spirit and what it means to be a people who have an audacious, bold, confident, daring belief in the gospel. It's far bigger and far more impacting and far more transformational than we've ever given it a credit for. 
Let me give you five suggestions around what it might mean for us to be men and women that are Pentecostal in the 21st century. Here's the first thing. To be so is to be people of proclamation. We are deeply rooted in the preaching of the gospel. We're deeply rooted in the gospel. But what is the gospel? One of the greatest challenges to the church in Northern Europe and in North America is that we have misunderstood what gospel is and we've replaced it with mission. The gospel is not do good. The gospel is not do kind things. The gospel is not do everything that you can to make feel happy, people feel happy about themselves. Without being too controversial, the gospel is not you can be healed. It is not you can be rich. It's not you can be pain free. It's not that you will go through the world without any difficulties. That's not the gospel. The gospel according to the apostle Paul is crystal clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I tell you, he says, what the gospel is. I pass on to you that which has been passed on to me. Are you listening? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Everything else that we do flows out of that fundamental reality. That sin and death and sickness and sorrow and disease and pain and loss have been dealt with by the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are to give our lives to it. The great problem for us is around about 2001 or 2002, I became a director of an organization called the Evangelical Alliance, responsible for leading out in relationship with three and a half thousand churches. And at that time, those churches were good at proclamation, but not so good at engagement. But more and more of them became good at engagement. And as a result of being good at engagement, many of them have lost their passion about proclamation. Brothers and sisters, we as Pentecostal people are empowered by the Spirit to proclaim that Jesus Christ is alive. To proclaim the gospel. Now the gospel then works its way out in our mission and in our purpose. I want to suggest to you humbly but uh, strongly that every local church in the world has a responsibility to commit itself to four things. First of all, every local church, doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what you do, are to be people who proclaim the gospel. Proclaim this message of salvation and life and new birth and forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ. The second thing that I think we are to be is we are to be people of presence. Duncan picked up on it yesterday. But I want to just reflect on it for a moment and ask you to reflect on it with me. As far as I can understand, the New Testament doesn't talk about presence only being there when we gather. There's a fundamental shift in the giving of the Spirit to us. And that fundamental shift is that we no longer need to seek his presence somewhere else. His presence is within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are now men and women who carry that presence with us. Into our communities, into our brokenness, into the world around us. There's no dichotomy between this and what Duncan was saying yesterday. I listened to him and I thought my soul was being fed and renewed and strengthened and encouraged. We are people of the presence. Yes, we are. We gather in his presence. But when we go home, we carry his presence with us. When we go to the office, we carry his presence with us. When we're standing at a graveside, we carry his presence with us. There is nowhere that I can go that the presence of God does not also go with me. 
And we as Pentecostals have a message of the presence and the power of Almighty God that will never be taken away from us. Our presence theology isn't about seeking something that we find somewhere else. It's about coming into living relationship with God, enjoying his presence as the people of God together, being refilled and refueled and inspired and encouraged and carrying that presence with us wherever we go and whatever we face. What would a community look like transformed by the presence of Jesus? Not just by churches that were full, but imagine schools where Christians understood what it meant to be spirit presence people. Where teachers and students and educators and governors, where doctors and lawyers and nurses and medics, where taxmen and soldiers and um, uh, Tesco operators understood what it meant to carry the presence of the Spirit everywhere they go and be the Spirit's vehicle for transformation in every context that they find themselves. Are we presence people? You better believe it. That presence isn't confined to being together. The remarkable reality for us is that we carry him with us everywhere we go in every situation. Thirdly, What would it look like to be prophetic people? I don't mean just prophetic in the sense of gathering in a gathering like tonight and saying God wants to say this to you and this to you. And I thank God for that. I mean prophetic in the sense that we stand in the public square and we declare the mind and the will of God. That we challenge bad policy. That we speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. That we become, in the words of Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8, a voice for the voiceless. That in every community that is represented here, what would happen if those that were most marginalized, most excluded, most outcast, most alone, knew that the church was there for them? What transformation and hope could be birthed in people if we, as people of the Spirit, understood that we proclaim and we carry the presence of God with us? And that we are his prophetic voice. And fourthly, what would it look like to pick up where we were this morning when James was speaking for us to be people so deeply rooted in prayer that we realized that without the Holy Spirit we could do nothing? I spent quite a lot of time in Westminster. I've done stuff. Every now and again, about two or three times of the year, I go to the United Nations and stand in that context and try to speak to people about what it means to have a faith that is living and real and can bring about life transformation and hope. The last four prime ministers of this country I've met with regularly. They ask questions about faith. I try to help and guide and engage with them in a meaningful way. And I look around me, and this isn't a criticism. I love this movement. I look around me and I think, where is the Pentecostal voice? Why have we allowed ourselves to speak into the church and let other people speak into society? I tell you, we ourselves can be a voice for good into our nation. When Wilberforce was alive, he had a number of objectives, but here was one of them. He felt called by God to make goodness fashionable again. 
What if we, as the people of God, we as people who believe that the Spirit lives with us, give our hearts and our lives, not just to when we gather, but to seeing goodness fashionable in our schools and in our colleges and in our universities and in our hospitals? What if we allowed ourselves to capture a bigger vision of what the Spirit was doing? When you read the book of Acts closely, you discover that there is a journey made in that book that takes them from where they are to where God wants them to be. They're pushed from the center of the religious world in Jerusalem to the center of the political world, Rome. And on the way, they stop at Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But when they get to Rome, here are the last words of the New Testament in the book of Acts. Um, If you were translating it directly, Paul is imprisoned in Rome, physically bound, not able to be free. But here is what the book of Acts ends ends with. And And the spirit moved unhindered. We are people who carry an unhindered spirit. What do you dream of in a hundred years' time? What do you want your um, prodigy to say about what we did? What will be said about our lives? I want to be able to hear the words somehow or see them written or be told by the Lord that this generation of Pentecostal people pushed further than the last generation did. That we believed that the best was yet to be. That we stretched ahead beyond where we were and we allowed the blessing that had been given to us to spill out into the world so that every strata of society was transformed. Here is how this story ends, brothers and sisters. One day, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So why not get in on that? Allowing ourselves to be the men and the women who stand with a fearless spirit anointing to say, we believe this gospel still works. I live in a village. It's the biggest village in England. It's called Chalfont St. Peter. Now let's assume for a moment that I don't have the faith to believe that God can change a nation. And that I don't have the faith to believe that God can change a county. Or God can change a city. What about a village? What would it look like for Chalfont St. Peter to be changed at every level? Housing, crime, education, employment, healthcare, everything transformed. This isn't instead of being born again. This is as a result of being born again. Can God do that? I think he can. But I've left the hardest thing that I need to say to you until now. I think one of the things that God requires us to do as Pentecostals is develop a stronger theology of pain and of suffering. Not just to tell people it's okay, God will heal you but to pick them up when he doesn't. And to help them to understand that that doesn't signify a lack of his love for them or a lack of his grace for them. On July the 12th, 2014, my sister-in-law, 
called Valerie. Walked into the garden of her house in Jordanstown, doused herself in petrol and set herself on fire. And a nuclear bomb exploded in our family. I was the only Christian. Four months later, on the 12th of November, 2014, my nephew, my sister's only son, 25 years of age, went into the woods and hanged himself. Four months after that, his dad, my sister's husband, brokenhearted by his death, hanged himself. Nine months after that, my brother, who I loved very much and hadn't been sober since his wife had died, collapsed from alcoholism and died. And six months after that, in November last year, my mother swallowed something that went into her lungs instead of her stomach and was dead within 12 hours. Where is the Spirit of God in the midst of such loss? What does a classic Pentecostal theology of healing say to someone like me? Let me tell you how I think the Spirit has worked in my life through that time. On the day that my, brother, my nephew died, I was sitting with my sister and my brother, and they were angry, they were cross, they were confused. And my brother said to me, how can your God let this happen? The question that people always ask. And of course, you know some of the answers to those questions, and you can give them. But they're not sufficient. They don't get to the issue. And in that moment, I silently cried out to God, and I said, God, you have to tell me something. Not just for them, but for me. You've got to tell me something. Why is it that so many people within the Pentecostal church, whether it be uh, Smith Wigglesworth, and I'm not in any way comparing myself to these men, by the way, whether it be Smith Wigglesworth or George Jeffries or Amy Sempo McPherson or even Colin and Amanda Dye. Why is it that so many people within the Pentecostal church walk with sorrow and heartbreak and sadness in their private lives and yet still stand fearlessly and boldly and proclaim the healing power of Jesus? And yet they hold this heartbreak. They hold it in their hearts because there's nowhere else for it to go. Somehow God can occupy, he doesn't cause it, but he can occupy our pain and bring hope to people that are in pain. He comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort wherewith we have been comforted. You can imagine my concern when I had well-meaning Christians write to me and say, of course this is all happening because you haven't rebuked a spirit of suicide over your body, your life. It's a spirit of death resting on your family. In other words, it's your fault. So as I stood with my, sat with my sister and my brother, I said to God, tell me something. I believe that was a Holy Spirit moment. And he did. My sister, my brother has three daughters. So I said to him, Bill, I'm going to ask you one question. Which of your daughters would you give so that Jonathan could be alive? And of course he said none. 
And I said, I wouldn't give any of my children either. And I have four. But I am a Christian. Because God the Father and God the Son made a decision that involved voluntary sacrifice by the Son. So that when you and I sat in this position, we would know that we are never alone. That did not come from my imagination. That was a gift of the Spirit in that moment. A few months later, I was standing at a gravesite. And by the way, in case you think I don't believe in healing, I passionately do. And six funerals, I stood beside the coffin. And I said, I want to be the last one out of the room. Why do you think I did that? Because up until the moment the lid went on the coffin, I believed that God could resurrect them. And I was saying, Lord, I am calling you. I am asking you to bring Jonathan back, to bring Colin back, to bring Valerie back, to bring my mum back, to bring Robert back. I believed that he could do it. I believed that he was able, Pentecostal to the core, but he didn't do it. And in that moment, a deeper Pentecostal reality emerges for us. And that is this, even death doesn't get the last word. Even suffering doesn't get the last word. Even pain doesn't get the last word. That's not a cheap theology. That's not an easy theology. It's the hardest thing to believe in the world. To stir into a coffin, to stir into an empty grave and say, even in this moment of utter darkness... God is still good and his love endures forever. And this is not the end of the story. We believe that for individuals. We believe it, or could we believe it for communities? Could we believe it for a nation? Could we believe it for Europe? Could we believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God can do something profound in our generation? I don't want to be one of those people that dies saying, God will do it tomorrow. I want to see my community transformed. A few days before he died, William Booth gave an address in the Royal Albert Hall. And he said, whilst there is one dark soul in England, I'll fight. Whilst there is one woman that comes in and out of prison because of the gin house, I'll fight. Whilst there is one man that doesn't know of the grace and the mercy and the love of God, Whilst there is one child that thinks that they are unloved and that they do not matter, I will fight. I will fight to the very end. My prayer is that the Pentecostal church in general and Elam in particular will stand in the public square and declare that the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. My prayer is that we will be the light in our communities. I look forward over the next couple of years to mapping What God is doing through Elam churches. The good that is being brought. The transformation that is being enabled. Do you know who the leading um, global partners in humanitarian aid are around the world? The Pentecostal church. Do you know who are at the front end of serving the poor? The Pentecostal church. Men and women with a passion for God that believe that victory is ours and we will live it out. We stood and applauded about 34 missionaries. Let's employ the same methodology that they employ in their countries, in our country. They are the hands and feet of Jesus. 
They serve the poor. They pick up the broken. They love those that the society has rejected. They are not locked away. They're engaged in transforming. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think, as you said yesterday, Chris, that we are in a moment where we must make decisions about the direction of travel that we will take. I say this with grace and with humility. If we do not embrace a gospel that allows a spiritual explanation for suffering and pain, then in two generations we will be irrelevant and in three we'll be a cult. We have to have an answer for the pain of the world. We have to point to the Christ who breaks his heart at the pain of the world. And I think that there are men and women here this evening whose hearts are bursting for the poor, are bursting for your community. And I'm not asking you to choose worship and encounter or engagement. I'm asking you to choose both. I'm asking you to pray tonight, Lord, break my heart with what breaks yours. And I'm asking you to let him release in you a burden for the excluded, the vulnerable, the rejected, and the alone. And I'm pleading with you to let your churches be communities where the poor are welcome. In 2003, I stood in India trying to find two little boys that had gone missing. Their father had reported them as not present. It turned out that he had sold them to a building company and they'd been poured into the foundations of a building as a sacrifice to God. And in that moment, a campaign was begun called Stop the Traffic. In 2004, I stood in the Dag Hammarskjöld Library in the United Nations and cut a ribbon that was declaring that poverty could be tackled by the church if we did something about it. In 2005, I accompanied police in the United Kingdom to a, a, a raid on a brothel. And in a room no bigger than this stage, against the wall were three cages. There was a seven-year-old in one, an 11-year-old in the second, and a 15-year-old in the third. In this country, in the Midlands, the young girl could be had for 40 pounds. The oldest girl was yours for a tenner. We rescued them. I walked across the road to a church that had a neon lights, Jesus saves. So I knocked the door. There wasn't an Elam church, but it doesn't matter. 
Somebody came and I said, do you realize that there's a brothel across the road? Do you realize that they're being trafficked? He said, you're lying. I said, I'm not lying. They're being trafficked. There are girls trafficked across the road. Can you do something to help? And he said, they know where we are if they need us. Until we see ourselves as called to break beyond where we are. We will not see our society transformed. But I tell you, that seven-year-old, right up to that 15-year-old, are just as valuable to God as you and me. Their lives matter. They have a name. They have a hair color. They had a mom and a dad. They had family that were longing for them. They had friends that missed them. And until we allow God to break our hearts with what breaks his heart, I'm not sure we can change the nation. So here's what I want to do. When we sing, Jesus' name brings hope and life, I want to stand and I want to name the people in my community whose lives are falling apart. I want to worship God with tears pouring down my face as I say, this isn't the end. The church has to be better at this. We can do more, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of fear. In 2005, I sat with Claire Short, who was then the International Development Secretary, trying to explain to her what the church was. And she said to me, tell me in one sentence what you stand for. And I said, there's nobody that we won't help. And she said, you don't believe that. I said, we do believe that. And she said, if you believe that, I would walk across broken glass to become a Christian. Our nation needs God. It doesn't need another politician. It doesn't need another brilliant leader. It doesn't need a set of good ideas. It doesn't need a social gospel. It doesn't need um, a quick fix gospel. It doesn't need, it needs God. It needs God in community. It needs God in society. It needs God in the center of power. It needs men and women to stand and speak to their politicians and engage with their business communities and engage with education. Let me say something to you with all the love in my heart. We've tried the other model and it hasn't worked. We've tried getting them all to come. We've tried mass conversions. We've tried the gathered thing and it isn't enough. We need to penetrate the darkness of the spheres of society, as Laurie Cunningham would say. We need to be intentional with bearing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit into business, into education, into healthcare, into the arts, into media, into science, into every level of our society. This is our great moment. This is our opportunity. Imagine what thousands of ordinary Christians could do if they had compassion and courage for their communities. Imagine if you're one of them. May God, by his Holy Spirit, anoint us with a new vision, a new passion, and a new burden. Let's pray. I want to ask you that are pastors and leaders of churches, if you're willing in this moment, or leaders of denominations or networks of churches, if you're willing in this moment to say, God, I give my life for my city, not just for the people that are already in my church. I want to ask God to break your heart 
with what is breaking his. To anoint you. Every one of us to be Christians who will go to the ends of the earth and stand to the end of time. I think God is moving by his spirit. I don't feel any different now to what I felt when I stood up. I don't very often feel anything when the Holy Spirit's touching me. I think better. But it doesn't make me second class. I think there are men and women here whose hearts are breaking for the broken, who want to see their city transformed, not just their church full, who want to see business transformed, who have a passion for all of the spheres of society to be influenced. I think you have a bigger vision of the gospel than you're giving yourself credit for. And you've been yearning to be released into a Pentecostalism that is beyond individualism. And here's the thing. This is not going to be an emotional appeal. But it is a very clear appeal. If you want to say to God tonight, I want a bigger vision of what you can do by the power of your spirit in our society, in our street. Maybe you're passionate about trafficked people. Maybe you're passionate about drug addicts. Maybe you're passionate about prostitution. Maybe you're passionate about alcoholism or about people caught in the riches of wealth. Maybe you're passionate about a town or a city being transformed, not just the church full. Then all I'm going to ask you to do is come and stand here now, and that's the only invitation I'm giving. Come and stand here. I think there's some personal ministry that God wants to do. This is a holy moment. Seventeen years ago, I said to God, please one day let my family get this. I've spent 17 years talking to Anglicans and Presbyterians and Methodists. Everybody but my family. Longing for a moment. pastors and leaders and the church family that I owe my spiritual life to would do what you're doing now (laughs) and would say 
we will give ourselves for the broken. We will spend ourselves for the abandoned. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. let his presence rest on you. So here's the personal ministry thing. About nine months ago, I said to God, I can't bury another one of my family members. I can't do it. I can't bury someone else that I've loved. And he said to me, Malcolm, you will never bury the person you love the most because he has died and risen again. Your problem son, me, is that you have allowed everything else to become more important to you. Make a list of the people you couldn't live without, Malcolm. So I wrote my wife's name and my four children's names and my sister's name. I said, these are the people I couldn't live without. And he said, then score their names out and write Jesus because if you put him back there then you'll love them more deeply and you will be able to bury anyone and you will be able to face anything when he has the center of your heart I think some of you have been impacted by my story you've been impacted by loss and sadness and grief and it might be depression and it might be sorrow and it might be illness and it might be uncertainty and I'm going to pray that God will give you grace in your situation and then I'm going to pray for our communities Lord these men and women have had people pray for them for healing many times you are able to do that But I'm not so sure that we give ourselves permission to offer you the sacrifice of pain as an act of worship. So tonight, come and meet those that have struggled with unanswered prayers. Who have felt your absence Remind them that the only reason they feel absence is because they first, at some point, felt presence. And that you are real. Give us grace. Minister into broken hearts. Minister into those who are at the end of their tether.
bring life and hope and mercy and grace and strength to endure and courage to stand and proclaim that you are good. Bring comfort and assurance and grace to endure the trial. Bring resilience and determination in Jesus' powerful name. And I now pray for communities across the world represented by men and women standing here. I pray for those that hear our songs through our walls but fear the sound of steps on the stairs at night. I pray that the brothels near us would close in the name of Jesus. I pray that the injustices perpetrated by a system which is corrupt will be broken by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for creativity and business. I pray for new ideas and engineering. I pray that you will give doctors and medics and radiographers the gift of imagination that they might discover new treatments, new ways forward, new pathways, new, new opportunities. I pray for educators. I pray that you will so move in your church that we will see a generation released by the power of the Spirit to carry all that you have for us into our society. And I pray... That Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and Wales and England and Scotland and all of those countries that were represented by our missionary partners that stood on this stage will experience such a deep move of your Holy Spirit that we will see chains fall off people. I pray that we will give ourselves to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry. I pray for a release of your anointing upon your people now in the name of Jesus. I pray for a a deeper understanding of what you would do in their lives and in their hearts. For pastors that want to love their city, their neighborhood, their borough, their county or their nation. Anoint them now by the power of the Holy Spirit. With a bigger vision. With a clearer passion. With a deeper yearning. I pray for regional superintendents who give themselves day in and day out to the purposes of your kingdom. Will you anoint them? By the power of your spirit. Will you release us from just seeing numbers. And help us to see people in the name of Jesus. And will you give us a holy discontent. So that we will see streets transformed. Boroughs transformed. Neighborhoods transformed. Communities transformed. I dare to prophesy. That in some of our cities. We will see crime reduced by the working of the Holy Spirit. That we will see exploitation Reduced by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we will see sin confronted by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that educational results will turn around. None of them instead of seeing men and women born again by your Spirit. We don't want a social gospel. We don't want a political gospel. We don't want a community gospel. We want a gospel that sees individuals changed from the inside out. And we rebuke and reject the lie that it has to be one or other. We claim both in the name of Jesus. And I pray that you will make Elam a movement of word and spirit. Deeply rooted in your purposes. And that you will give pastors and teachers and youth workers and evangelists and apostles and prophets words from you. And we pray for the day. 
with all of our hearts when the glory of the Lord will cover the the earth as the waters cover the sea. Thank you for this moment. I pray for Chris and for the NLT. As they lead us into new territory, give them grace and wisdom and discernment. Come now by your spirit and anoint them in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would birth in this room new visions, new dreams, new longings. Raise up men that want to see young men released from the trap of pornography in the name of Jesus in this place. Raise up fathers and mothers in this room. Raise up people that will adopt children, that will welcome the stranger into their families. And raise up Elam churches that have love written across them in red. That people might know that you're a God that loves them and cares for them. And as we worship you now, breathe your spirit upon us. Breathe your anointing upon us. Undo us with holy love. And may we never, ever be the same again. Don't know where we're going, but Father, would you speak right now? Would you say a thing? We want to agree a can be the enemy of possibility and so I want to remind you that this is not an altar call it's a call to the altar that as we stand in that place where our real influence takes its greatest and most glorious powerful experience and expression in the presence of God we start to be empowered for all that God would have us do as we step into the world so we want to take this moment. Malcolm and I have never done anything. I've never done anything like this before. But we want to commission us as a people to go into the highways and the byways. To be the people of God that we're called to be. And I'm going to start by a phrase that has been burning in my heart for four years. I think it's the sound of the future. You shall go out with joy. Why joy? Because it breaks everything else in its wake. You shall be led forth with peace. What is peace? The absence of problems? No, the order of heaven here on earth. And the mountains, whether they put political or economical or trafficking, they shall melt like wax. 
as you become the fullest, most glorious, and most incredible carrier of the presence of the Lord. And I declare over you that you will be harbingers of hope. That you will be voices that cry in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Amen, amen. I pray and declare over you that God will write straight melody with your crooked lives. That he will join the symphony of his spirit to the lyric of your personal situation. And that the music of heaven will be played into your communities. I pray that your eyes will see with the tenderness of Jesus Christ. That you will see a new creation. That where there was once blackness and despair, you will see hope and new life. That where there has been hatred and division, your voice will be the voice that brings healing and restoration. I pray that the work of the Spirit that brings unity will flow through you in such a way that communities that have been torn apart by nationalism and politics and ethnicity and pride will be restored by the power of Jesus Christ. And I declare over you that when you remember the body of Christ, you will indeed remember the body of Christ. That you as God's people will bring together again an expression of hope and life and purpose for those who have felt all their lives that they do not belong and they are not loved. Brilliant. I knew this was a bad idea. We're having a declaration off. Is that okay? okay? I knew it was a bad idea. I just want to leave you with this thought. That as Jesus entered our universe, known to us as the world, the angels declared joy to the world that the Lord has come. I often wonder why that declaration, above all declarations about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, was the one thing that they chose to speak out over the nations. And I encourage us to be carriers of that most glorious and most noble privilege to be filled to overflowing with the goodness of God. Praise His name I wonder if you would show your appreciation for this incredible man of God that carries such a passion, purpose. The whole thing is about taking territory. And I'm reminded, and it's my actual baptism verse. I've had it 24 times given to me by 24 different people. I think it might be an inheritance word. Wherever you place the soles of your feet. Can I share it with you? Can I spread the love? Would you like to claim some of that? Wherever you place the soles of your feet, that ground he has given you. But remember, be courageous. Do not let the word of the Lord depart from you. In other words, keep you where you need to be. But be strong and courageous. Who would like big feet? I like big feet. We're praying and prophesying for big feet ministries to arise. God bless you. Have the most wonderful adventure with Jesus.